welcome to the PID webinar, the Pakistan Institute of Development Economics. My name is Nadim Al-Haq. Uh, we are about to begin our usual webinar uh, and with some of the best people in the world coming to Pakistan on Zoom to educate the people of Pakistan. So today we are very glad to have Professor Ralph Keeney. Professor Keeney <clears throat> is a well-known well, first of all, he's a professor emeritus at the Duke Business School. Um, so there he's taught for a long time. He's also a master trainer and a major consultant in the U.S. He has his own consulting firm, U.S. Marketing and Decision Group. And uh, he does a lot of decision consulting as well as decision training. Uh, professor Keeney is kind enough to give us his time and hopefully... Professor Zakini, we should be able to bring you to Pakistan someday uh, when COVID and all these restrictions allow us. Professor Zakini has a number of books that he's written, um, citing energy facilities, smart choices, acceptable risk, and he's got a lot of um, um, article, journal articles that you might expect from a professor of his stature. Uh, Professor Keeney is going to talk to us about the essential skills for quality decision making, which I personally would like to learn a lot about. I think we in Pakistan really, really could benefit from this. So with that, Professor Keeney, thank you very much for coming to the Byte platform. And uh, over to you. The point about improving decision making is certainly relevant. It's relevant to everybody because decision making is your primary life skill. The reason is the only purposeful way you can improve your life, your business, or your organization is through the decisions you make. That's your power of influence. Everything else just happens due to the decisions of others and happenstance. So improving decision skills is very important. I can improve mine and anybody can improve theirs, partly because none of us ever learned how to make decisions when we were young or even older, like is the case with other skills. We can improve our decision-making as we improve other skills, such as playing a sport or a musical instrument. First, you need to understand the skills, then learn how to do them, and then practice, practice, practice. Imagine if you were interested in tennis and you listened to the top people in the world tell you how to play tennis, and you read some books on it. The first time you went out, you wouldn't be very good. And if you played 20 games of tennis a year, you wouldn't be very good. You've got to practice the various skills there and you'll get better more quickly and have a better game. It's exactly the same for decision-making. One of the things about the practice is on decision-making is to practice on personal decisions. There's many reasons. There are so many decisions, so you got a lot of opportunity to practice. You can practice when you want. You're not forced to do it at various times. You can do it privately. No one's sitting there and judging you, although you can certainly share it with others and sometimes learn more. They can be very short sessions, 10 minutes. If you're standing somewhere waiting for somebody to meet you and you've got a 10 minute break, you can use the time right then. It results in better decisions, and the more practice, the easier it is to do. Most importantly, those skills, even though they're on personal decisions, are exactly the same skills 
necessary for professional uh, corporate decisions, uh, country decisions, or various governmental decisions. So what are the steps of a good value-focused decision framework, one that can really help you? It's got a front end, very straightforward and simple, but often not done. Be clear about the decision you want to face, identify what you hope to achieve by doing it, objectives, and then create a useful set of alternatives. If you do that, there's a back end of evaluating those alternatives and hopefully making a good decision. On the vast majority of decisions, there won't be much of a formal back end, but on big important business, government, or policy decisions, then there is a lot there. Gathering information to describe the consequences or creating models to help do that, then creating an objective function, and then putting together, evaluating the relative desirability alternatives and doing sensitivity analysis. So with the front end done, here's what you end up with, a very clear statement of exactly what's relevant to your decision and what isn't. The frame is basically the decision you want to face. And then as you can see here, the columns are the alternatives and the rows are the objectives you want to achieve. So all the information you want is something that helps you describe how well one of those alternatives measures up in terms of one of those objectives. And in each of the boxes, you want that information. Knowing your objectives also indicates all the information you don't want that might take a lot of time to calculate, but isn't gonna influence this decision much. So that's another key reason to have the objectives clear. Next frame, I mean, next slide. Why is the front end so crucial? Because if any part of that's poorly done, it's very unlikely you can make a good decision. Obviously, if you're not addressing the right decision, you can't make a good one. If you don't know what your objectives are, or some of them, you can't make a great decision. And if you don't know what the alternatives are, you can't make a decision. And even though the examples I'll give, all those are personal, all those skills are used on tons of problems. Here's an example of some of those I've worked on. The first element, state the decision you want to make. Often we feel that we understand that decision and we wanna move on quickly and start to solve it because it's a problem we wanna get it over with. But our concept of the decision is not often clear. So we end up addressing maybe only part of the decision or some ambiguous decision that's not so clear or literally the wrong decision. I can give it an example here that happened. An important person was coming to town and you had always wanted to meet them. And through a connection, you've got an opportunity to meet them for dinner Wednesday night next week. So you go to their hotel, you find out where they're staying, uh, staying, and you ask the people in the hotel, where's a great restaurant nearby? And they tell you one that's close. Wednesday comes, you go with the person and the dinner is great, good food, but the evening's a disaster. The restaurant was way too noisy and you couldn't have a decent discussion with the person you wanted to really meet. They hardly know you and you don't know much about them. You addressed the wrong decision, where to have dinner together. The decision should have been where to have a great decision together that also serves food. 
and then you wouldn't have had this problem. But given it was to find a restaurant, you're gonna find the best one to eat. Next slide. Here's examples of poor decision statements. People say things like, we should purchase the cheapest television, car, or big meal. Likely other factors than cost matter. So that's pretty poor and you don't necessarily want that in your uh, statement most of the time. Saying your job in, isn't interesting and has to change. I mean, that indicates there's some decisions there, but it's very vague as you can see. What's this mean? Talking to your boss and improving your job, resigning, getting a new job. Should I visit Canada on my summer vacation or not? When you have alternatives that give you one alternative like visit Canada or not, all other alternatives are grouped in that not. So it's very hard to evaluate how good not is compared to Canada. You wanna know what the alternatives are you're considering for a summer vacation. Come up with a, another case visiting your grandmother you could say, should I visit her this weekend? You really want to see her and she's maybe four hours away. So it's a trip up and back and something comes up. No, you can't this weekend. How about next weekend? No, you can't. And what you really want to do is visit your grandmother. So the decision shouldn't be a series of sequential decisions this week, this week. It should be when should I visit my grandmother and include various weeks in the future and then choose one because all of those alternatives have the fact that you will visit your grandmother, which is what you want to do. And often, you know, we look at decisions at the wrong level, like should I exercise today? In general, that's not a good decision. You should say, you know, what should my exercise policy be? And if it's exercise five times a week and you put down the days, then you don't make a separate decision on those days unless it's a very rare case. And then it's do you go or not? And, and do you substitute it by one of the other days? A good thing for a decision statement is to be, begin it with the word decide. That kind of puts a little more focus on things, followed by one of those other words there, which, what, when, etc. And examples are like the one I just said, decide when should I visit my grandmother? If you're thinking of writing an article, you're an academic uh, or you're a grad student even, decide what article I should write. And that may mean that the topic and you'd also have some related decisions like where might I submit that, et cetera. So decide's a good thing to put in the front of all of them. And then make sure that it summarizes the decision you want to make. And one check of whether you've got a good statement is if you ask another person just to read it. And if they know what it means, that's an indication it's a good statement. But oftentimes you don't. Uh, so the second element, now we're getting to the, the tougher substance, specify all that you want to achieve by making a decision. And here's a, somebody probably had this as a quote. If you don't know what you want to achieve by making a decision, how could you possibly make a good decision to achieve it? You can't. It's absolutely essential to know what you want to achieve. And I use the term values to describe that. Anything that you care about regarding a decision, a little more general than what you want to achieve, anything you care about regarding a decision. And the reason I do that is I don't want people to get worried about whether 
it's something they need to achieve. If it's related to the decision and they care about it, it's a good starting point to come up with the values. Uh, well, I guess it's one more way, that's okay. Uh, the values, where do they come from? They come from the decision makers, of course, stakeholders on policy decisions. If you're making a decision that will affect a lot of others, you might care about the implications to them, or even the head of the company is certainly concerned about the implications to their workers and their customers who would be stakeholders there. Or sometimes knowledgeable individuals. If you've got a medical decision and you're not completely aware of all the things that might be relevant there, it would be good to talk to somebody who does know what are some of the things that you should care about. This is your decision. You can decide whether you do care about them. And that's a question. Decision makers, oh, that's it. Can they identify all of their values for a decision? The answer is certainly no. Often they can't. Many, many cases, that's it. Here's two world famous people who kind of stress that point. Benjamin Franklin said, decisions are difficult chiefly because when we have them under consideration, all of the reasons pro and con are not presented to the mind at the same time. But some set present themselves at one time and then others at another time. And his pros and cons are the values, what you care about. And he's right, people don't have them all in their mind. I don't on some of mine. And then Nietzsche, great German philosopher said, forgetting our objectives, meaning what you care about in a decision, is the most frequent stupidity in which we indulge ourselves. Here's a story on how difficult it is to uh, get the objectives. I knew people had a, a hard time figuring out what their values were for an important decision. So I was invited to give the talk to an MB cl MBA class of 300 in the first year. The standard program is two years. And in the year in between the first and second years, they go on an internship. They get a job at a firm that teaches them a lot about the business they're interested in. 40% of the students who go there actually get a job after second year at the same companies where their internship was. So you really want to make that decision well. And yet I know people often don't get their objectives. Next slide. They often get less than half of them. And the example that I just gave you, uh, before I gave the seminar, I asked all the students to, to do homework assignment. Actually, this was set up. I said I would give the seminar if we give them a homework assignment and they got graded on it, particularly on the time they put in. And one of the questions was, what is the objectives you have for your internship? They wrote them down, no guidance. Later on, I gave them another question and said, people often miss many of the important objectives for their decisions. Take more time. And for some people I said, add at least three more objectives. Others add at least six, some add at least nine. Some add as many as you can, and some other things. And so they did. And then finally, later on, I showed them a list of 31 possible objectives they may have for that internship that I created with colleagues at Duke and MBA students at Duke. So I asked a lot of people and they had a pretty complete set, I thought. What happened is all those students got six objectives their first try, and then they thought they were done. When I told them, I'm sure they weren't, the 
best of the six different groups that I said, think harder and create more, created five additional on average. So they had 11, but yet when they checked the set of the 31 objectives that I showed them, they had 21. And the ones they missed were just as important as the ones they got on their own. So they're missing half of their objectives on a very, very important decision. I've seen that a lot in consultants, consulting. Uh, if you go to one individual, if you go to a bunch of individual at a firm, of course, you'll get a, a wider set and a more appropriate set. And all the people can judge whether they are part of the appropriate set. And uh, just because this is an academic group, you might like the last example. Many times when I've talked to uh, groups in universities, a lot of the students are doctoral students. And I say, what are the objectives of your dissertation? And an awful lot of them put one objective to get a PhD. And it's really sad because I don't know what they're thinking about. Then I asked them, I said, is there any chance you want to learn something by doing your dissertation? Well, of course, everybody says, yes. I said, you didn't write that down. Is there any chance you really want to enjoy what you learn? Is there any chance you want it to have an impact on some things in the future? Would you like to be able to write articles based on some of the material in that? And the, it's usually yes to all of those, but it didn't come out when they were first asked. And these people are smart. So again, the message, getting your objectives is not simple. It takes work, but there's ways to really do it that aren't difficult and you'll be much better doing it. Next slide. Here's a process. First, create a wish list. Anything, any value you can think of regarding your decision. So that means anything that you care about regarding the decision. Next, you stimulate additional values by some things you'll see on the next slide. Then you can ask others for suggested values for your decision. They may know something about it, like if you're the internship, you'd ask others what their objectives of their internship were, and you may learn some that you missed. And then finally, the set of values you have identified now, they can help you get additional values by asking why you care about them. Next slide. This set on the left gives you a lot of things that can stimulate your thinking and kind of move you toward coming up with objectives you don't yet have on your list. I'll just cover a couple of these because you have the set of there that you can use and I'll give you a source that has all this information at the end. I mean, one, emotions and feelings. I mean, anything you care about that's evoked from this decision is a relevant thing to help you get some values. You could think of some alternatives that are hypothetical even, one that would be perfect, one that's terrible. Ask, why is it perfect? Why is it terrible? That's gonna suggest objectives that are relevant to your decision. You can use constraints, that might help you. Take different perspectives. How would somebody else I know think about this decision? Or a competitor, if you're in business, who faces this decision, what might be important to them? So there's a lot of things to stimulate your thinking there. After you do that, then you ask others for suggestions, uh, as I mentioned earlier, and then use the recognized values to search for missed values. For each of the values, you can ask yourself, why do I care about this value? Well, there's an answer to that. 
And then why do I care about the answer? There's an answer to that. And for it, we'll see that in a moment. It's, it's the means to end subjective relationship and eventually get to what really matters. Examples of uh, the bottom, a worthwhile adventure, environmentally friendly, a smart hire are things you might recognize. And then that'll drive you to come up with other objectives. Next slide. Once you've got your list of values, it's often sometimes a rough list. Now you want to state them in a, in a specific form, the form that I refer to as an objective, which is a verb and in an object format. For instance, somebody in a decision says, one thing I care about here is the money or the cost. Well, I mean, if it's money, if they're thinking of jobs, does that mean to maximize their salary? Or could it mean maximize profits or minimize costs? If somebody has an environmental problem and you ask them what they care about and they say, well, the river smells. Well, then ask, so are you can have an objective to reduce pollutant inflow or restore the habitat? You can ask them, like, how can I reduce the smell? They might say, well, reduce pollutant inflow. There's an objective. It's got a verb and an object, pollutant inflow. And they might, that's first, and it's a means to restoring habitat, which is again, a verb and then an object. Somebody says, well, something to me is important is to be successful. Well, that could have lots of meanings. Does that mean increase my skills, get promoted, be respected by peers, all of those things or others? Here's just a bunch of examples of clarifying your values, sort of like I just did on that slide. But for instance, if someone was selecting a community in which to live in, they may, the second one, have a concern that they state not to have a car. Well, state, restated as objective, to have necessary goods and services nearby that they could maybe walk to or conveniently get to by public transportation is the whole idea here. And then sometimes people use goals, like they, they'd like it to be a sunny place, and then to categorize it as sunshine over half of the time or less than half of the time means 1% and 49% sunshine is the same in any evaluation. So you really want it to be a little clearer and state the objective is to enjoy much sunshine and then have the measure as the percentage of sunshine. Those are some examples. Next slide. Then you want to organize your objectives because they really help you on your decision and make it not as tough. Uh, stating the values as objectives allows you to understand the relationships much better. And a couple of important ones are a fundamental objective is an objective that defines the basic reason you care about the decision. A means objective is an objective whose importance stems from its influence on achieving another objective, which is referred to as an ends objective. Now that end subjectives may also influence, be a means objective also that influences how well another objective is met, but eventually you get, as we'll see in a moment, to a fundamental objective in a chain. Why those are important is fundamental objectives are the only ones that should be used to evaluate and compare alternatives. So if you could have uh, on some big decisions, 
literally a hundred objectives that's affecting many, many people in different situations. It's a big policy decision or government decisions that have a lot or company decisions a lot. You can whittle things down in the evaluation because only the fundamental objective should be used to evaluate and compare alternatives. Mean subjectives, on the other hand, are useful for identifying uh, other fundamental objectives that maybe aren't there. And they're very useful for creating alternatives as we'll see pretty soon. Next slide. Now here's four slides that come up. And this is on a, an important decision that everybody can recognize. And almost unfortunately, probably everybody knows somebody who has had cancer at some time. So suppose one has cancer. I mean, what are the objectives that they may have? I've spoken to a lot of people about this and actually worked on some decisions that they had to make. And here's a set that's more complete than most set of objectives that you'd see there. And you can look at them and you basically know what all those objectives would mean. And you can gain a lot of insight once you have these objectives by organizing them and relating to each other. So next slide. This breaks them into the fundamental objectives and the means objectives, all the others are means. So for, for instance, why you'd be interested in objective get all the cancer. I mean, it's obvious you don't wanna have cancer, but the question is why? Well, the why is answered by some of the objectives on the right. Obviously you'd like to minimize the likelihood of death death in the near future, et cetera. And that's the relationship here. Now, the next slide shows more detail on both of those two components. On the means objectives, it shows the relationships of various of those means to other objectives where an arrow means influences. So get the cancer or get all cancer, as this written there, is a means to the medical risks of treatment and cancer. And I should say here, I left out the, the verb at the front of each objective just to save a little space and have this not be so messy. I just wrote down the object of the objectives. And then all these means objectives have impacts on the fundamental objectives. And there, there's a hierarchy sometime in some. Uh, like personal costs, there's three aspects of it. And in a sense, that means you only need the objective of total costs, not necessarily the separate ones to different places because probably a cost of uh, $100 in one place or another place doesn't make a big difference. It's a $100 cost. And so you can just add those up. So it simplifies from 10 that we had on the previous slide to these five, the bigger ones here. And then the next slide, please. So this just shows in detail with the, the verb at the beginning, what the fundamental objectives would be. Now this is in general, for a given case, if one looked at these and thought all those listed were a pretty good set, they might go through this and, and figure all of them and figure out some of them aren't relevant to them for their particular decision. And so there might be fewer than these. When one goes through just this structuring of objectives for any important problem, 
and you get it as clear as this, and you can get buy-in from the various people who have some influence on the decision. They think their concerns are included there and everything. Then you've at least got people who are thinking about evaluating the alternatives in the same way. If they're just evaluating alternatives based on totally what's in their head, they may be using very different objectives and much different relative importances on some of those objectives. And, and if they had the clarity of the structure of the objectives, you might find out they're in more agreement than they had thought. Next slide, please. Uh, and just for reference, I should say there's 46 slides here. So in case you're getting real tired of this, we're a little more than halfway through. And then we have some questions, I think. So creating a desirable set of alternatives. Obviously, they're the potential choices. And to be an alternative has to be something that you have the complete control over. Two important facts, very simple, but very true. You can never choose an alternative that you haven't identified. And your chosen alternative can be no better than the best of those you have identified. These two things stress how crucial it is to spend time trying to create good alternatives. If you create one alternative that's better than the obvious set that you were considering, that could have more importance on improving the quality of the decision than almost anything else you do. Next slide, please. What are the results here? How good are people at creating alternatives? The result is the same as with objectives. People miss an awful lot of alternatives that might be pretty important. And I've done experiments that go through and, and sort of show the same type of results. So the message, it's important to dedicate some serious effort to create some good alternatives. Don't just think like on a lot of decisions, people think, well, I have this decision problem. I want to get rid of it. What could I do? And they think of one alter alternative. And they think, yeah, how's that going to work? Yeah, I think that might do it. It's good enough. Let's do it. And so they choose it. But if you want just good enough in life, then it's maybe okay. But if you want something a little better than good enough, give a little thought to the decisions and it'll likely happen. Next slide. What are the pitfalls of creating alternatives? Well, kind of by that example uh, that I just mentioned briefly, no time is spent creating alternatives or too little time. And then not the thinking creativity, creatively, sorry. People often think business as usual. I say, well, we've done this in this situation before and then this, and this is a little different. So they just tweak it. So they move it, it's the same thing they did before, just slightly different. They set inappropriate constraints because if they set constraints, then they think they have least fewer alternatives to consider. They throw it out just because it might be not so good on one. And imagine if you were buying a car and it could be a used car. So suppose, and I'm not sure what currency I'll use, but I I'll use dollars. Suppose you were getting a used car for $5,000. You said, well, I don't want to pay more than $5,000. And you looked at a bunch of cars and there were some that were 4,900 and, and some of them were okay. But there was a car that was 5,200 that was so much better on other things. Likely you should think, 
Well, for the $300 from $4,900 to $5,200, this car is a lot safer. It, it's gonna, it's much more efficient on gasoline or it runs on electricity, various things. That should make up the difference for that $300. So you don't wanna just stick constraints on and then stick to them forever. You can use them, but then you wanna reconsider whether they were appropriate once you get closer down to uh, really comparing the alternatives that seem like contenders and see if maybe you could beat it with one that didn't quite meet one of these constraints, but is close. And uh, stopping your search after one good enough alternative is just a big, big mistake. Next slide. How should you create alternatives? Well, here, just step and say, why do I care about alternatives? Well, the reason is you want to achieve your objectives. So use your objectives to work backwards to what alternatives might really help achieve these objectives. And you can make an awful lot of headway there. I've done that in numerous cases, getting people to think. Next slide. Uh, and, and in that strategy right there, first, I mean, when I've had a group, and I'll tell you about a story in a moment on that, uh, you want people to work alone because you don't want to have them anchor on others. So I would never have a company in a business, you know, bring 10 people in to talk about potential alternatives. First, I want them to be alone and think about alternatives and then come into a meeting because you're gonna have a lot more original thought. People won't have anchored on others. Then uh, when you're doing this process, you can take one objective at a time and say, what would be a great alternative on that? Now that should be a little easier to do because there's only one of the objectives that matter. And then you can, you've got a bunch of things created for each and then you can think of pairs of alternatives. So. Some of those alternatives you thought of, you might need to tweak a little or move them somewhat. So it did great on the first objective, but pretty poor on the second. But if I just change it a little, it'll do almost as great on that first objective and a lot better on the second. So this will stimulate you. And then third, you can try to enhance any of the ones you've come up yet in the same type of thinking, they're just at a higher level. Then have friends and other knowledgeable individuals come up with suggestions. That's on personal decisions. Because again, the, the original thinking you do is going to not only create more alternatives that might be good for you, but then when you have discussions with friends or knowledgeable people, you'll be able to ask much better questions of them to help them maybe come up with alternatives that might even be better in that particular case. Uh, next slide, please. So, Enhancing the alternatives, sort of just mentioned some of this, but uh, once alternatives are defined but not implemented, you can certainly consider them and think, you know, how could I modify any of these, and especially the ones that, let's say, you got two or three or four competitors, how can I modify any of these in ways that might make it somewhat better yet? And there's a few thoughts there that I've, I've really mentioned before, so we won't go into them, but the general time to think there is worthwhile. Next slide. So the, the BNF 
I'll mention the benefits of creating alternatives for a decision. And I think I'll, I'll take the second one, which is a, a longer one here and maybe appropriate for this group. The, the first one was just a, a personal example that uh, really had an impact on a, a family because they usually followed one alternative for a vacation. And the gentleman heard me say, one should create a set of alternatives to consider. They did that for a very important vacation that was coming up and it turned out to be fabulous and everybody in the family was extremely happy. And it was didn't take them much effort, but they just thought, well, we'll do this decision a little different this year than previous year. Well, the government workshop was uh, how to, about how to improve evacuation from large buildings, like 25 stories or more. And the big, big problem there is potential fires. And there were people in a meeting near Washington, DC from a bunch of different countries. About 35 people came with skills on all kinds of aspects concerning fires and technology for de dealing with fires, et cetera. And they'd been in their various jobs or fields for years. So I knew they had a lot of ideas on how to improve things. So the first morning, I asked them all to write down any alternatives they could think of that would improve evacuation and got all that information from them. Because if I didn't do that, that's what they would want to talk about. Once they had talked enough about those things and, and got that information out, the afternoon, I got, what are your objectives that you would are concerned about for getting people out of large buildings? And we came up with a big set of things there. Then the next day, I took this material in the nighttime and I asked them to use those objectives. I kind of cleaned them up and took the collective list that I made from everybody, et cetera, and asked them to use those objectives to create uh, alternatives they hadn't thought of for evacuation from large buildings. And I asked them in various ways and used some of the ideas that I just mentioned to you. And collectively, they basically came up with 200 additional alternatives. And then on the third day, did a rough comparison using some of their judgments of some of those alternatives that they created about how good they were in terms of effectiveness, getting people out of the building, uh, cost of implementing, and how likely or how long it would take to really implement them. Were they ideas that might work in 20 years or ideas that might work in one year? And some of them were great on all three of those criteria. And it was very interesting to me because I hadn't had kind of a unique audience where you had some people who were best in the world at their little thing, not their important little thing, I should say, regarding evacuation. And yet you could get them together and collectively and by stressing the objectives, double the number of ideas they came up with. Uh, next slide. Now we're gonna switch to just two other important things about decisions that I think many people don't recognize. So this isn't really solving per se, a decision that, that you initially state, but they're concerned with a couple very serious aspects of decisions that can certainly improve your life and improve your business or your organization in which you're in. 
Uh, most of, of my decisions and your decisions are caused by the decisions of others, happenstance and actions that we take without thinking, which have some bad consequences, which force us to make some other decisions. Well, examples are your employer eliminates your job. You contract a serious illness. Fire damages your home. Your child's not doing well in school. Every one of those presents you with a decision problem. And it's definitely a problem. That's why we call them decision problems. And who wants to deal with problems? Well, we'd all rather not have those problems, but we need to deal with them. So next slide, please. Uh, next slide, please. Now, uh, so who should make your decisions? Think about that a second. And people often wonder, I must have some trick. Why did I ask that? Because it's obvious and there's no trick. Next, just click it once more. Obviously, you should make your decisions. So please click like you were going to a new slide because it'll, yeah. So you should make your decision. So who should choose the decisions that you face? That's very different. You should at least more than you do. The decisions that you make on problems that you must face is reactive. You have the power to create decisions that you choose to face. This is proactive. And I refer to those decisions as decision opportunities. Nothing bad happened to cause them. Okay, now stay on this one for a while. This shows the difference between the two. In an example, is one I chose just because everybody can can get it. It's everybody understands it. So this is a timeline on the top of the slide. And this is situation where you're in a job today and you like the job. So life goes on and you move to the right. Then unfortunately, you lose your job. There's a maybe a few people had to be laid off, etc. Now you have a decision problem. You know, what should you do or what job could I get? So you look at, try to find out alternatives where you could get a job, et cetera. You apply. Now, employers have a decision. Do they offer you a job or not? Hopefully they offer you some jobs and you have them. Now you have a decision, hopefully, to choose among a few opportunities. And at least one, if you don't have much of a choice, you just have to take it. And then uh, hopefully you select one. So you're in a new job. Now you're working again and life goes on. Now that's reactive case. Suppose you're proactive down here. So you're in the same job today, the bottom of the thing. Life goes on, but you want to improve yourself at work, develop some work skills. No one asked you to do that. No one forced you to do that. You decided. I'm interested in doing that. You created that decision opportunity. You had then had to figure out the alternatives and how you do it and what would you really want to learn and improve. So then when it comes to somebody was laid off in the firm, you might not lose your job, but there's a chance you would because, and if you did though, you'd probably get better references from your uh, boss or people at the firm that would help you get other jobs and better jobs in other places. So you're better off in both ways. And you're more likely to get offers for employment because you're 
have better references and you have a better record of skill, you go through here and the same thing, you apply, you hopefully get some jobs, you choose uh, the one you'd like, and then you're working again. Life goes on and you keep pursuing other decision opportunities among the decision problems you need to address. Now, the next slide shows a little different picture of that. So the first slide, when it's on the left, the quality of your life or an aspect of the quality of your life is on the vertical scale on the left. So I put the quality of life today and it goes on roughly. And then the decision problem well, your quality of life just popular. You'd rather have a job than be looking for a job. So you're looking, and then hopefully there you get an alternative that's implemented and things improve. Now they could improve right away, take a jump up, or they could slowly improve and get somewhere. And you'd probably end up with quality of life somewhere in that same spot, just as a picture of, of what's happening here. Uh, now compare it to the decision opportunity on the right. You start at the same quality of life today, and then you think of a decision opportunity. That doesn't degrade the quality of your life at all. Then you think of what could I do that might allow me to proceed and accomplish something that I wanted. Same things, it would go up and different ways it could go up. And you might end up somewhere in that blue box. And you can see the quality of life in the blue box is in general, a lot better than the quality of life in the pink. Decision opportunities usually always have net positive outcomes and decision problems often don't. Next slide, please. Why don't people routinely create decision opportunities? Well, I think there are two main hindrances. Uh, one, I mean, most people, Never heard that term. I never heard of it. I'm, I would guess some other people came up with the same idea. But when I wrote a book called Value Focused Thinking, that's what I call them decision opportunities. So it's often just to have a specific word or words describe something makes it easier to use it. Also, People without much, who don't think about it too much would say, well, gosh, I have enough decision problems already. Why do I want some more decisions? Well, these aren't problems. And so that's uh, why you'd want them. And they can avoid problems. Uh, so creating and pursuing decision opportunities isn't difficult. It just kind of flips the natural order of the following. Beginning with a decision problem that you must face leads to consequences that eventually occur. But beginning with the consequences that you would like in the future leads you to a decision opportunity that you can face. It's kind of frontward, backward thing there you could do. Next slide, please. So here's just some examples here. You could do it for anything. Anything you desire for yourself, for your family, for your children, if you have any, for your parents, uh, for your company. Uh, you're doing plenty in there, but you can think of things. Now, some easy ones. Um, most of the time, no one comes around and tells you you need to get more physically fit. You could decide if you'd like to. And so you could decide to return. Uh, you'd like to do that, pursue it, and say you want to routinely exercise. And then if you set it up and do it, 
Hopefully it has the effects you thought and wanted to have. Uh, you could say, would I like to develop a new work skill? Well, and it's what skill and then how to learn it. And you know, you'd think about how useful would it be? You'd have a, lo a lot of objectives in selecting that skill. And then uh, jumping down to the, the latter one, uh, suppose you thought I wanna become a better decision maker. You can certainly do that, decide to learn and practice the ideas. And again, I can do that too. And I do do that all the time. I'm always trying to become a little better decision maker because it's interesting to me, but it's also very helpful. And then sometimes I can help some others. Next slide, please. So this is the last separate idea. It's decisions requiring authorization. In many situations, another individual who I refer to as an authorized decision maker controls whether an alternative that you want can be implemented. Now, that's certainly true for kids. Uh, I mean, the parents have total control over most of their decisions. And, and then they go to school and teachers have an awful lot of control, et cetera. And then when we go to work, bosses have a lot of control. You can come up with good ideas and do things, and et cetera. But off, those are examples of authorized decision makers. And it's not bad that, that there are authorized decision makers, but sometimes you think of something you'd like that you would need to get authorized in order to have it implemented. And so what can you do so that happens? Next slide, please. What you want to do is basically create an offer that includes what you want, but it also is good for whoever the authorized decision maker is. So you create a win-win situation there. And so they're happy to go through with it. And uh, when you start thinking about it, the authorized decision maker probably is unaware of your thoughts. I mean, it, companies I worked at, or I should say, I didn't give an example because I know a lot of you probably academics. I was uh, on the faculty at MIT after I graduated. And I did uh, was in a department and I did plenty of things for the department, tons of, tons of work. And I was wanted to be gone one week in the school year and go on a particular vacation. So I had taught in other people's courses, et cetera, and had everything set up and two visiting people were gonna to come to my course who I helped in their courses. And they were gonna teach things they knew a lot about that were relevant to my course in the week I was gone. So I went to my uh, department head and I just told him I would be gone in two weeks from now and, and told him why. And he seemed pretty upset about it. And then I explained to him what I had done and why this was better. Uh, because I was going to be fresher. I would have the same visitors probably come and give the talks anyway, because this was a, a class that had people with different expertise come and talk to them. And that I had certainly done my share and even more than my share. And why this strategy was going to help both with the course I was doing and with the other course. So then all of a sudden he wasn't so upset about it and he thought that was just fine. 
And uh, you can often get what you want if you just figure out how can you make it a good deal for everybody. Next slide. Uh, an example of creating this, it's a different kind of context. And it, I don't know if it's quite as, as relevant, uh, but I think you can get the idea there. It may work with things other than a house. And suppose somebody wanted to buy a house and they found one that was really great and could buy it for the price that the, the seller said, but it was a market where people were bidding more than the stated cost of the house. And you'd really like to stay there, but you can't afford it. So what happens is you try to find out, well, what are some of the concerns of the seller or that the seller might have? And you find out the seller of this house is going to move to a new place in about three months. And basically a new place means leave the country in this case. So if you buy the house now, she would have to move out of it, find a place to stay for two and a half months. That's not so convenient. She'd have to move her belongings somewhere to that place and then move again in three months and have to clean the house and everything. You could create an alternative. Maybe you're not so concerned about it moving in immediately. So you can offer to purchase the house at the sales price, allow her to live in it either for a low rent or free, either one, and for those three months. And you could tell her then when she moves, she just packs up what she wants to move when she goes back to the country she's going to. And you'll take care of the rest. If she leaves some other stuff there, like some chairs she doesn't want or whatever, you'll take care of them. So you just solved all her problems. It makes things a lot easier. And for a lot of sellers, that would be worth an awful lot because they've got all these things to deal with in three months and you just solved them all. You just said to them effectively, sell your house for the, the stated price to me and you've got all your problems out of the way. You can enjoy your next three months and then conveniently leave. It would often get you just what you wanted. And of course it would make it a better thing for the seller too. Next slide. So let me just tell you the power of this on a little thing decision. And this is our 10 year old son, who's not 10 year old. I mean, he's 35 now, but uh, it, it's a very good thing, I think, for younger people because it allows them to understand that they really can have some influence. And it, it kind of helps a lot of things. Uh, I think it, you'll see it. So he came home and it was after school and he came and talked to me and he said, there's a very special television program on TV tonight from 10, uh, excuse me, from eight to nine, could I watch it? And I said, uh, well, do you have any homework to do? He said, yes. I said, how long would it take you to do it and do it extremely well? He thought about it and said about an hour. I said, that's interesting. I said, what if you didn't ask me? Oh, and I asked him who controls whether or not you can uh, watch that program. He said, well, you do. I said, yeah, you're right, I do. So, uh, what if you didn't ask me the question if you could watch television, but you asked me, you said the different, this following to me. Dad, I have a 
a lot of homework to do. If I go do it and do it as well as I can do it and finish it, can I watch a special program on TV tonight from eight to nine? What would I say? He said, you would say I could watch it. I said, you're right, I would. So who would control whether you watched TV or not? And he started thinking and then a smile came on his face and it got bigger and bigger. And then he said, looked up at me and he said, Dad, I'm gonna go in my room and do my homework as well as I can do it. And that's what he did. And of course he watched the, the program, but he learned the general principle from that. I mean, most parents want their kids to do reasonable things, not get in trouble, do well in school, be nice to others. And if they're going about doing that, they can more or less do what they want. Uh, if, if they really think about it. And uh, he got it and he has used that idea forever. Now you could say, is that taking advantage of me? Not at all. That's exactly what I want him to do. Do well in when he was 10, you know, do well in school and learn things and learn to enjoy learning things, et cetera. Anyway, and it works with all kinds of people. It's very good, very important, and it does empower them, including yourselves. Next slide. And we're about done. Here's the summary. Each useful piece of information that you identify in making a decision. That means each objective, each alternative, each little tweak of an objective is something that can kind of give you a push in the right direction, a nudge to make a better decision on that particular choice. The ideas that you've heard today are not going to tax the thinking of anybody that's listening here at all. You can do all of this stuff uh, quite easily. And when used, your decisions with better will get better. And with practice, your skills improve. So you'll need less time on decisions and you'll even make choices on better decisions, some of them decision opportunities. And so you'll have more time to enjoy the consequences of your decisions, which is a good deal. And then I think the last slide. Uh, first, thank you very much. And I know we're gonna have some questions. And all of these ideas that I talked about are in a uh, paperback called Give Yourself a Nudge uh, by Cambridge University Press. So thank you very much. And now I'm happy to have any questions or whatever. Thank you, thank you, uh, Professor Keeney. Um, that was a, a very nice introduction, or not even introduction, very nice recipe, very nice handbook for how to make decisions. I wish we could hand it to our government because uh, our biggest problem is the government makes decisions without following your recipe at all. They tend to you know, rush through things and uh, sometimes rush towards climate change, sometimes rush towards this, so say um, feminine empowerment, sometimes rush towards making governors empowerment, sometimes rush towards politics, and we have a deep mess. So my question to you is, uh, in doing all this, uh, you, you give a lot of talks everywhere, you think businesses actually use something similar? Does your government use something similar? Or does your government also make decisions on the fly? Um, I mean, having lived in the US, I can sort of 
see that some of the things are not done in a very considered manner in the US, especially in terms of uh, the foreign policy. I think they tend to be a little knee-jerk rather than doing the careful decision-making that you're talking about. Would you agree or not? Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if I'd agree that they are doing a worse job in foreign policy than they are in many other things. Okay. Because they're not doing well in many other things too. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and I mean, it's a person, I mean, there are certainly people, and I'm sure you have some in your government who are really dedicated and, and would probably have feelings similar to you, but they, you know, you don't have all the power to do what you'd like to do. There's an awful lot of restrictions on you. Mm -hmm. But I, I personally feel that given our system, I mean, the first objective of a lot of politicians, even at the city level and things like that is uh, to make their life good and uh, help their friends. Yeah. But I'm maybe a little strong. But on the other hand, certainly I've worked with uh, government agencies that do want to, at least on given problems, and the people who I'm working with care about doing things well, and you can have some impact on that. I mean, I worked on a big study where to put the nuclear waste from power plants in the US, and that was in the 1970s. And uh, that study kind of forced not putting it where some government people wanted it because it was the most convenient political place because everybody right around that area was familiar with nuclear energy. But the trouble is the underground where they would put it was not the underground when you would want it. It was very near a, a big river. You know, it's much more likely to leak. And we're talking about things. They were talking about it. You wouldn't want problems for 10,000 years or more. And uh, that had an impact. That was not at all the alternative because the analysis kind of made a lot of that clear. And then they couldn't hide behind it much. So you can have certainly impacts that maybe improve things, but likely, I mean, no analysis. First of all, no analysis makes a decision. And these were complete analyses. Only thing that makes decisions is people. Analysis, regardless of how complex or complete, it gives insight, hopefully, to make a better choice. So for instance, as an analyst, I can have some feelings like you. I would like them to appropriately consider things and in a sense, do the best they can at coming out with a good choice, but certainly getting rid of the poor choices. In some sense, that's even more important than choosing the best. Because if you were, in general, had a lot of alternatives many times and you were choosing among them the best three or four randomly, you'd be doing pretty great compared to what we, we are doing. Right, right. But tell me, uh, I mean, in some sense, what you're saying is absolutely correct, that we should analyze, do a careful homework, etc. But then coming to something like thinking fast and slow, um, we do tend to ponder things, as, as has been pointed out by Kahneman, etc. We do tend to ponder things, but when it comes to taking decisions, we use our gut. How would you react to that? I, I think st some people do. Well, first, I don't think most people give an awful lot to decisions. And they, if you take all people, and they don't have any training. Mm -hmm. 
a vast majority have no training. And uh, I think it's appropriate. I mean, in some sense, your gut is an aspect of that's maybe your collective knowledge for a person who's thinking their collective, collective historical knowledge that might be relevant to the decision you're doing. And you don't want to spend forever maybe analyzing it. But uh, then there's a lot of people that don't have that much experience. And, and certainly the, the behavioral economists like Danny Kahneman and Tversky and, and many others have looked at all the shortcomings people have and they even tabulated 175 different shortcuts that people make that often mess up things. So, I mean, we can't change the people. I mean, humans, uh, you know, have a ways to go. I don't know. I don't know where evolution is in its progress, but it could certainly improve. No, absolutely correct. But, um, uh, but the the issue that I fear is, for example, lots of um, businesses as well as countries have unfortunately fallen into. Um, I mean, we are economists, so I've been working a lot with uh, economies around the world. I've been uh, working for the IMF, and I've seen, uh, as Barbara Tuckman used to say, the march of folly, that many governments follow the usual things that have people have warned them about and create um, giant projects or create giant welfare schemes and then eventually end up getting in debt and then you know, uh, having nowhere to go and then you'd have bad times come. Um, now, that's a failure of collective decision-making. Individual decision-making may be gut-based, um, as Kahneman, et cetera, the behavioral economists say, but countrywide decision-making seems to be much more policy uh, or politically-based, I should say, politically-based. And the politics tends to get in conflict and somehow we can't unravel that. Is that something that uh, that you've thought about? Well, I certainly, I mean, that's not exactly my field. No, I mean, I, I, I recognize decisions all over. I think many of them aren't structured and carefully thought about. I think many of them have objectives that they would never state. Uh, and, and I recognize the likelihood that I have much impact on any of that is about zero. I mean, th those are problems that have been around for a long, long time. And, and they're problems much bigger than I deal with. And uh, so I, in some sense, I accept some of those are just part of what is at least life living where I'm living. And there, so those you could think of as constraints or just some realities of it, but right. I'm not overly involved in them because that's uh, going to degrade my life a great deal rather than others. Now, if right. somebody asked me, you know, any government decision that's important one, and they asked me if I would work on it, most of the time, I would certainly be willing to do that because there's some, some cases on, on big problems where I got people to totally my objective wasn't to get them to change their mind per se, it was get them to really understand the consequences much better of certain things, which I thought might change their minds and have had that impact on some people. But 
relative to important government decisions. I mean, they're small, even though there may be billions of dollars kind of level things and, and many people being influenced but nowhere near as big as the big government. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like we can okay. certainly, I mean, my personal thought about things like COVID in the United States, COVID came and we, we set our objectives to minimize the number of deaths and to minimize the cases and to not have the hospitals be overrun so nothing else could happen there because it came very quickly. And that was maybe okay for a few months. And then the way at least I see it, everybody's life in the country, and this is probably in all countries, was really pretty much disrupted in numerous ways. I mean, for instance, teaching. Many, many, many schools in the US didn't do any teaching and everything. So you have two years of kids with no teaching, little kids and things like that. And so after two or three months, I would like to have thought somebody in the government would have said, our decision has changed. It's what should we do that's best for the country and for the people in the country at this time, given we have COVID, not what's the best thing we can do regarding only COVID. And, and we probably, if one did a good analysis on that, we would have had a few more COVID deaths, but we would have had less other kind of deaths like suicides, because people are just sick of the way things are, but, but on non-fatality things, it would have had a lot of impact presumably on education or on jobs people had, or I don't, don't know all they would have thought of, but there was just a lot that weren't thought of clearly in the decision. And that's what people often do, take the one that's gonna get the news. And obviously COVID was in our news every single day as probably elsewhere. But uh, Professor Gini, one more thing uh, that I, um, let me, uh, if there are any questions, please raise your hands. One more thing that I'd like to raise is, uh, what, what you just talked about COVID and things raises the question of risk taking. And, uh, you know, again, behavioral economists, economists have written a lot about loss aversion and what you um, more or less pointed out in, in government policy was a loss aversion, that, uh, that they wanted to minimize the COVID deaths and do, not worry about it. Well, I wouldn't call that loss aversion. That's just yeah. very narrow on the objectives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That example isn't to me. Loss okay. aversion, and yeah, pe people follow loss aversion. I mean, if you do an analysis, you put that in there appropriately. And uh, mm -hmm. I mean, in some sense, way be before behavioral economics started, I mean, people like Kahneman and Tversky and everything would be in the same meetings I would go to. Those were the people interested in decisions, particularly Tversky. Mm -hmm. uh, right. And uh, so they were the same set of people. So you'd run into them a lot of the times and one side's looking at how do people do these things and the other side's looking at how might they do it better or how right. should they prescriptive but it's mm -hmm. not that they should do it there's one way to do it find the right way because if they have different objectives they should do it differently than someone else who has a, a different objectives than they but tell me i mean just uncertainty the fact that there's uncertainty in the world and the fact that the risks involved um, in, in, this, in this analysis that you gave, 
yes, we can list all the, um, I mean, you were right that we can value things and we can list them and we can try and analyze them and take decisions. How would uncertainty and risk-taking affect us? Well, it depends on what the uncertainties are. First of all, there's uncertainty about everything. And to be very simplistic, if there were absolutely no uncertainty in somebody's life, mm -hmm. they would have already lived that life. Yeah. Because everything you would know, everything that's going to happen in the next second to you, you would know how you felt, what you yeah. did. I, I mean, in a sense, the revelation of uncertainty in the future is living. I mean, I don't know. I didn't read that anyway. That's just what I think about it. So I'm not anti-uncertainty. God, life would be so phenomenally boring if there weren't uncertainties. On the other hand, uh, what, what you want to do is understand what those risks are as well as you can and incorporate them in the decision. And you can mm -hmm. be risk averse mm -hmm. or risk prone and there are reasons for it. Uh, and people haven't thought about that a lot. Some of them have ludicrous statements of their preferences given risk. I mean, what some per person would say, death is so horrendous that any number of deaths is terrible. We should, the only thing we want is no deaths. Well, we're not gonna have no deaths from many things. And they may think that way, but to me, a thousand people dying it's more serious than 500 and it's a lot more serious than five. Now it might not be linear. I mean, it could be in the preferences you'd want to lose use, but uh, I mean, on complex analyses I've done, you certainly incorporate the significant uncertainties there and, uh, and then do some sensitivity analysis around them and see if things change and how they change. And, if certain things are particularly bad, based on that, can you modify the alternatives to improve them? Right, right, right. Uh, this, uh, the, the way I look at it in, in our societies, uh, in the developing world where we are, people tend to be very risk averse because they have far more uncertainty in their lives than, than you guys. I mean, here, for example, the flood hit us and we had yeah, um, that was, a huge yeah. amount of that, that left. So we have a huge amount of uncertainty. We also have uncertainty in the fact that what the government does. We have uncertainty in the fact that we're sleeping at night and the Afghan war started and then the right. next Afghan war started, you know, et cetera. So we have lots of uncertainty in our life. That makes people extremely risk averse. And they tend to go for the safest option at all. Uh, any thoughts on how you can... Well, I think... I mean, given the way you describe that, I don't think that's necessarily unreasonable. I, I mean, I would agree, although I don't have probably the, the knowledge you, probably the many of the people in the US certainly don't have the level of risks facing uh, them as many of the citizens of Pakistan do uh, for, for various reasons. And so I think it would be much quite natural that if I were in that situation, uh, you, you know, I'd have shorter term objectives and that would be to avoid these risks because some of these are serious enough risks that basically we will die. And so I would 
I think it's quite a reasonable reaction because there's always the potential hope that maybe it will be different in sometime in the future. And with certain things, I mean, with the floods, the floods, as I kind of gathered, were really at a level that is not routinely seen. Big outlier. Yeah. Big outlier. And so uh, it's not. But you like know what worries me? What worries me, Professor Keeney, is the fact that when I I've talked to a lot of kids and I work with a lot of kids, and I find that kids, because of this uncertainty and this this maybe risk or whatever, their ambitions have been shaved down. They really are looking for a safe government job and not necessarily trying to risk take a, take the risk to make a business or trying to take a risk to to excel at something and that to me is of great concern here so my question to you another interesting thought that comes to my mind is this taught anywhere in schools i would have thought this would this should be taught in schools but i don't i guess this, even this school, meaning decisions a decision analysis i don't think it's taught even in schools right no and i often wonder i mean especially after your talk i wonder i should say why should we not teach this in schools? I mean, should this not be a, a module somewhere? I mean, you know, hey, how do you take decisions? Instead of waiting to be at my age to learn from you, I mean, why can't we learn it early? Well, I, I mean, I agree. I think we could teach things in schools, as I said on the second slide. I mean, that's, that's the thing that influences everything in your life. And people can get some of that. I, I mean, right. our son, you know, my 10-year-old my example is a, is one thing there. I mean, parents can do a little bit. I, and for instance, the book I just showed, people ask me, is that technical? Because I mean, Howard Grafe and I wrote a book, Decisions with Multiple Objectives. It's one person looked at the book one time and, and at our home, they were there for dinner. And my wife said, that book's translated into Japanese. And the person said, that book? I thought it was Japanese. And, <laughs> In, but people ask me, is this give yourself a nudge technical? And I ask them, do you consider the word percent technical? And most people have said no. I said, well, it's used two times in the book, and that's the most technical thing there. And and people can understand that, but you know, it's a big change. I mean, no one no one learns decision making in the US basically. You don't get courses in most of the schools. I mean, there's a little bit of thinking that, nor in the colleges. And if they have them in even business schools, there'll be a couple lectures and, and it's a skill. You can hear some things that sound like good ideas. Like you'd say, figure out your objectives. Yeah, well, I can do that. Okay, now tell me something else. And uh, they think they can do it. And it's, it's just not the case. And, and again, it's not, I can't do it either. You give me a totally different decision and one important one, I'm going to have a very tough time coming up with everything. Mm -hmm. I probably can do a little better job than most, but uh, it, it's again, an analogy is maybe the tennis. You know, I could be a decent tennis player. I'm not, I don't play tennis, I play squash. Squash a game that, uh, you know, as you maybe know, you had a phenomenal number of Great yeah. Pakistani squash players, but the cons all and etc. But uh, you know, you you can be pretty good. I'm not pretty good. I mean, I'm okay, 
but you can improve and improve and improve. And squash is easier than life. And that's what decisions are. And it's, but I, I totally agree with you. It would be great if we really taught decision-making, but then good place to have people learn it would also be teachers. And some of those aren't in our country aren't gonna be able to learn it. But I guess that's, that's another problem in decision-making that our governments um, seem to confine syllabi to the medieval era where we are still learning content and not life skills. And um, even my grandkids now, for example, are learning content and yeah. no amount of information is given to them on what life skills are. Even for example, simple finance, being able to balance your checkbook or being able to manage certain investments or whatever. Nobody, nobody tells them what an investment is. Nobody yeah. tells them. So nobody tells them decision analysis. Nobody even tells them. So we are so focused on content because that was what we were learning in the industrial era. And now that we've come out of that, we still are learning the past. We're not learning the future. So that's a sad part of the schooling um, uh, story. But we re reinvent the curriculum every few years and even international experts to come and, come and reinvent our curriculum. But the curriculum seldom contains anything on life skills. It's all content, content, content. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> That's a huge problem, I think, in the world. Yeah, I agree with you. But thank you very much, Professor Keeney. You've done a marvelous job. We shall use it for your talk for our students. We'll try and get them to understand this. It's, it's very nice of you. I've seen your book, Give, Give Yourself a Nudge. I know it's a bestseller. Um, and we will, we will be using that in our courses here. Thank you very much. It's very kind of you to come to Pakistan virtually. We'll bring you in one day physically, if possible. Well, that would be wonderful. And uh, I appreciate the opportunity. And uh, I guess given the time, I hope you all have a good day. Thank you. Yeah, indeed, it's morning still. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank, you very much. Thank you, yes. very much, Professor Kini. All Thank the best. Bye-bye. Thank you.